So now I'd like to introduce Charles. He's going to be doing the sermon today. Please welcome Charles. Thank you, Sarah. Oh, thank you for the warm welcome. It's very nice. I feel very welcome. We have a big topic today. It's uh, something that I haven't really uh, talked about in the sermon setting. In other settings I have, but not really in this setting because such a big topic, it usually takes like a couple of hours. So I'm going to try to keep it under two hours, okay? <laughs> I'm just kidding. You don't, you're not going to be sitting here for two hours. But the topic is, so this sermon series is how do I think about, you know, like various different things that's difficult to think about. And today's topic is how do I think about salvation? specifically who and how you get saved. Well, that's a big topic, don't you think? It's such a controversial topic. Wars have been fought over this, right? People have died over this. It's not a topic that you lightly approach because there are so many different convictions about how you get saved and who gets saved and People feel very strongly about it, right? Doesn't come up in a, a cocktail party, does it? <laughs> Something you stay away from, right? So anyway, um, I've been asked this question recently. And I just felt like this is a perfect setting, perfect time to address it. So I'm going to try to... Uh, give you a broad view of how people have thought about this and how we think about it here at the river. Sounds good? Big topic today. Aren't you glad you came? <laughs> All right, as I said, there are many, many different doctrines and convictions about how to get saved. Judaism, Islam, they emphasize obeying God's laws in the holy texts like the Bible or the Quran, right? I mean, this is a, a simplistic categorization, but I'm trying to capture the essence of the spirit of what different uh, traditions have said, So, and we do need to keep it under two hours. So we're just going to try to touch the main points. Sounds good? Okay, so Catholics, how many of you have Catholic background? Okay, quite a few. Uh, Catholics believe in the power of the sacraments, Right? Baptism and Eucharist in particular has tremendous power. That's how you get saved. Wouldn't you agree? It's how, you know, Catholics, you have to get baptized, become confirmed, and you get Eucharist, and that's, these sacraments save you. Uh, Protestant churches have rejected that uh, uh, as hocus-pocus. You guys familiar with that phrase, hocus pocus? We, we use that phrase to describe something that's like a hand-waving magic that doesn't work, right? Now, hocus pocus, its origin is very interesting. Protestants used that word to mock the Catholics when it began because the Eucharist, the communion, the Latin phrase begins as hoc est corpus, which means this is my body. When she just said, this is my body, eat this in remembrance of me. So it begins as hocus 
corpus, it sounds like hocus pocus, right? So that's how Protestants mock the Catholics as being believing in this hand waving magic that's a scam, right? So Protestants have felt the conviction that it's not these rituals. These words, you know, it's not some magic words that save you. It's what you actually believe in your heart and how you live out your life, how you know the Bible and know it well, and that's what saves you. That's what caused the schism, right? Very brief history. <laughs> it's just, I mean, it takes, you know, weeks of lectures to really talk about the schism, but I mean, very short, brief description of what happened there. And then within the Protestant denomination, there are 12,000 denominations in the United States within the Protestant denominations, each with their kind of own ideas on how you get saved and who gets saved, and it's a big business, right? A lot of people saying, you know, you got to follow me or you are going to hell, right? Um, so many out there. Some say you must remember the precise moment when you get saved, when you got saved. You got to remember that day, that hour when you said, Jesus, I repent, I accept you as Lord, and, and that's how you get saved, right? Uh, how many of you are familiar with that kind of tradition, right? So, you know, we all come from, we are familiar with these things. Different people have different convictions. Others say that's hogwash, you know, they say it's really about knowing the right doctrines and it doesn't have to be a specific moment. Endless debates with very many different thoughts uh, about this. It's kind of confusing, don't you think? Right? There's so many people so convinced that they are right. I mean, who is right? So, let's turn to the Bible. What does the Bible say? Well, it's still confusing. <laughs> I guess the Bible has many verses about salvation that different denominations point to as the justification for what they believe. And they seem to fight each other. They seem to be contradicting each other. And it's, it's hard to make sense how it all comes together. Right? So today, I believe I can offer a framework that can bring together all those different verses in the Bible into kind of a unified way of thinking that will help us kind of not go crazy, but feel like I have some consistent understanding of how this works. This is the culmination of like me thinking about this for 30 years. <laughs> so, sounds good? I'm excited. Let's take a survey of all these Bible passages about how we get saved. They fall into, broadly, two categories. One is what you must do to be saved. Right? All these passages about something you have to do to be saved. And then the other category is what you must believe to be saved. What you must believe to be saved. Right? Faith and works. Do and believe. Those are two big categories. Let's look at what you must do passages first. John 3.3, 3, Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Born again. Have you heard that phrase? Born again Christian. 
very famous phrase, right? You have to be a born-again Christian, especially in the evangelical tradition. You have to be born again to be saved, right? Big phrase. That's something we have to do. This verse is where that belief comes from. Other passages. Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Um, he says we have to carry our cross daily. Whatever that may, may mean, it's something we do, right? It actually sounds like something that's actually difficult to do, right? But we have to do it or you don't get saved. We will lose our soul. We will forfeit our soul, right? Something we have to do. There's the greatest commandment. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Do this and you will live. So it's again, it's something we have to do. We have to, uh, the love, that, that word here in Greek is agape. It's, it's unconditional love. It's divine love. We have to love ourselves and others and God unconditionally. We've been talking about this for a while now, right? And it's something we have to do or we will not inherit eternal life. We will not get to live, right? Um, another passage. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. So, doing wrong will get you out. So you have to do right. <laughs> it's something we do. Another passage, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So he's referring to himself when he says, Son of Man, this is Jesus speaking. So this is where the, the Catholic, we talked about Catholics and their belief in Eucharist. This is the verse that, that that's based on. Uh, the Catholics believe at the moment of communion, when it's done by the priest, the bread and the wine literally becomes actual flesh of Jesus Christ and the blood of Jesus Christ. And you have to take that in to be saved. Just as this verse says. Does that make sense now why they believe this? It's a very strong Bible justification for that. That's something we must do. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Baptism is something we must do. Baptism and communion. This is where it comes from. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. You have to sell everything you have in order to get the kingdom of God and be saved. That sounds very difficult, right? Something we do. A lot of passages about things we must do. And then there are verses about how important our beliefs are. So, what you must believe passages. Let's take a, a brief look at some of those passages. John 3.16, very famous passage. This is how God loved the world. He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16, right? You, you see that in football games, you know, like, 
People carry those signs. It's very famous. If you believe in Jesus, you just get eternal life. Very clear, right? Uh, If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Simple and clear, right? You just have to uh, believe that Jesus is Lord, that historical fact that Jesus was born and died, is Son of God, and you just are willing to say it, you're saved. That's all it takes. Very simple. It's what you believe. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. So lots of verses about believing is how you get saved. In fact, there are Bible passages that emphatically say that it's only faith. It's not what you do because it's a gift from God. Ephesians 2.9 For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So this is saying, it's not about anything you do. It's a gift from God. You don't earn this gift from God, this salvation. Nobody deserves it. It's just given to you. It's not about what you do. It's about what you believe. Right? Why are you now challenging God? says, so you, you, you're challenging God if you think burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear. We believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. I talked about this at length uh, in the last sermon. Uh, that it's basically saying no one could do what God wanted from us in order to be saved. Therefore, Trying to do things to get saved is not going to work. It is undeserved grace of the living God that saves us. It's only by having this faith that saves us. And these are the verses that cause the Protestants to split from the Catholics. Salvation by faith alone. Sola fide. It's the Martin Luther's five solas. Very famous phrase. So you are saved only by faith alone. And we are a Protestant church, so that's kind of what we believe, right? You're familiar with that? Very famous stuff, right? But there are all these passages. So what are we to think about this? <laughs> all these passages, they seem to be very emphatic. So for most of us, over my 30 years of being a Christian and 20 years plus of being a pastor, This is what I have found. Most people kind of believe and act and live like it's kind of both. It's kind of a combination of do and believe. It's sort of like, you know, believe the right doctrines and do kind of the right things and it kind of saves you. You know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Believe Jesus is Son of God, died on the cross for our sins, which makes us good with God. So from now on, clean up your act, try to follow the Bible's rules, and you're good. Does that sound familiar to you? Right? Try kind of like, it's like insurance, right? You know, we're talking about eternal fires of hell versus heaven. A good place just ended, and I was watching that, and you know, it's a lot of stake there. You go to the bad place, you go to the good place. So, you know, play safe. Do both. Right? 
you know, believe right and do right. And it's just kind of like, that's kind of in people's heads. Don't you agree? Yeah, it's a, it's a bit fuzzy. And that's kind of like how we want like to go about it. There are big problems with that though. Let me just list two. The problem with this is that one, it doesn't solve the question of is it by faith alone or is it works and faith? Uh, I mean, it's just a big deal. Is it grace and gift from God or is it something we earn? It can't be both, right? Is it given to us or is it something we do to get? It's very, you know, if if you just hold both, it doesn't solve your problem. It's still there, that dilemma. Right? The, The other problem is the problem of geography. Geography. I don't know if you are aware of this, but whether you actually believe these facts about Jesus... Whether Jesus is Son of God, Jesus was born, died on the cross, resurrected. This mostly depends on where you were born. When you look at the world map and look at who's Christian and who's not, you know, I have some statistical background. I can tell you with very high certainty, if you tell me where you were born, I mean, if you were born in Saudi Arabia or Tehran in Iran, there's virtually no chance you'd be a Christian. You'd have a better chance of winning the Powerball. Okay? You're not going to be a Christian if you were born there. It would be like believing in the devil if you were born there. At least you wouldn't say it outright. (laughs) And so, if we really believe that it's believing in Jesus' historical facts that saves us, then what you're saying is that you believe that you are saved by the accident of where you were born. That's how it will work. So you are believing that God will send people to hell for eternity for the accident of being born in the Middle East. You know, you're screwed. Sorry. You know, <laughs> you just drew the short straw. You didn't win the lottery. You got born in Iran. You're going to hell for eternity. That's it. I mean, are we okay with that? Can we seriously believe that about God? How can we believe God is just and loving and and believe such a thing of God? It, It makes God out to be some kind of monster. An absolute monster. You know, if you're a Christian, your first duty is to glorify God. And to peddle such a thing? I mean, Christians of all people should not say such things. It insults God gravely. You know? Monstrous. How can we say that? Don't you agree? So so we have some problems here, don't you think? With what we just kind of blithely live by. And just not think about. And just think, oh, you know, I'm lucky enough to live in America. And I believe these things. I'm kind of a good person. So who cares about... Those people living somewhere else, you know, they go to hell, forget it, <laughs> right? I mean, how, how we can't like sleepwalk through our faith and life like that. That's a big problem. Agreed? 
So today, I'm going to try to offer you with a framework to think about salvation that reconciles all these various verses and help us with these problems. You know, I really should charge you for this. <laughs> oh, wait, you do give offerings, right? You know. But we don't, you know, we don't ever ask you for money. You just have to, like, give offerings on the way out just because you believe in this project called church. But anyway, I think I can help with all these confusing, mushy things that we just live with. Okay? Let's begin by looking at the passage about being born again. It's such a well-known phrase, born-again Christian. It deserves a closer look at what that actually might mean. So that, that passage comes from, it begins like this. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. A Pharisee was someone who really believed in the Bible and wanted to follow the Bible and do everything in the Bible. And he was a, a religious leader among that movement. And so he is a... a you know, in today's world, he might be a megachurch pastor. He might be, he's a big deal. He's a theologian, maybe. You know, someone uh, very big in the Bible movement of the day. Okay? After dark, one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. There's a speculation about why he came after dark. He may not have wanted to be seen with Jesus. <laughs> he was such a controversial figure. But he is such a righteous man that he acknowledges Jesus and follows him around. In fact, after Jesus dies on the cross... Nicodemus is the man who takes Jesus' body and buries him publicly. He asks for the body from uh, Pontius Pilate when all his colleagues have condemned Jesus and they have you know, killed him, really, blood on their hands, and he breaks with them to bury Jesus. What? You know, what a move. You know, it's kind of like today, I don't know if you heard that Christianity Today, the editor wrote a critique of Trump, and two days later he resigned. <laughs> it's kind of like that, you know, you go against your group, you finished, finito, done, you're out. He was willing to stake his whole career and his life to do that. Maybe his own life may have been at risk back then. So this is a righteous man. He tries to do everything that the Bible tells him to do. He even follows Jesus around. And he risks his life and career to do something for Jesus. Now, wouldn't you say that's a righteous man? Probably a better man than any of us here. I mean, I don't know all of you, but he's a better man than me. Okay? A great example of a, 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 a religious leader, a Christian, I would say, really, uh, back in his day. So what is surprising about this is that he is told he must be born again. 
meaning he needs to be deconstructed completely and reborn as like a new person, completely different person. Otherwise, he won't be saved. And you think, really? A guy like that? Because that's kind of confusing. Because when we think about born-again Christian, right? What do we think of? You know, it's very effective to, for a lot of people born again. Like, you know, so many of us, including myself, at times and different times in our lives, we get shaken up. And different things happen. And, and like 16 million of us in the United States have been in jail. I mean, half the country have been addicted to something or another. Half the country have been divorced. We, we get, we, our lives sometimes turn chaotic. And it falls apart and we get into trouble. And when Christians come to these troubled people and say, be repent, be baptized, be born again. What we mean is, and it's very effective, you know, like your life is falling apart. Turn around. Clean up your act. Believe in Jesus. You, you are not too far gone. You can be free of your addiction. You can be get out of jail and start living a productive life. Put your life together. Believe in Jesus. Get baptized. Clean up your acts and start living a righteous life and your life will go a lot better. That's what we think when we think of born again Christian, right? Repent. Turn around. Start living clean. You know? When we think of born again Christian, this is the kind of picture of a born again Christian that comes to mind is someone like this, right? Like just clean cut, Bible believing, you know, righteous person who lives uh, straight and narrow, right? The problem with thinking like that is Nicodemus already is living straight and narrow. Nicodemus looks exactly like this, right? Nicodemus is a shining example of born again Christian that we think of. And he is told he must be a completely different person. Born again. You have to be like 180 degrees from who you are. It has to be like, you can't even recognize you anymore. You, you just, you're born again. You're like a different person. And that's told to Nicodemus, not some drug dealer. Jesus did never said you must be born again to sinners and prostitutes. When he hung out with them all the time, he never said that to them. It is Nicodemus, he says, you have to be born again. And now we think we have to turn people into this to be born again. Do you see the problem with that? My God, what happened here? Right? We're doing, black has become white and white has become black. Right? A complete confusion. I mean, if that is born again, how is that? For Nicodemus, how is that born again? How would he be different in any meaningful way? He would still be living straight and narrow. He would still be believing in God. He would, after conversion Nicodemus, is pretty much the same person as before the conversion Nicodemus. Right? So there has to be something different going on when Jesus says, this guy has to be born again. So what is that? What is it about the cross that would reconstruct who you are completely when you are already such a righteous man? 
I believe the answer lies in the intersection between the unconditional grace of the cross and the unconditional love of the greatest commandment. The cross, the essential message of the cross, is that we are unconditionally worthy, unconditionally beloved. Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners, while we didn't change anything about who we are. He just unconditionally just poured out His love for every human being. You are unconditionally worthy, no matter what. That is the essence of the message of the cross. Amen? And the flip side of that is, then, we must let go of everything that makes us worthy in our own eyes. Everything that makes us worthy in our own eyes. It might be being a good mother. It might be being a a good father. It might be being successful at your job. It might be having 10,000 Instagram followers. I don't know. What makes you get up in the morning and makes you feel like, oh, you know, I'm worth it. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Some people seem to have that naturally, you know, and other people have struggles with it. You know, like this feeling, I'm worth it. You know, my life is worth it. I'm worthy. You know, today is worth living. What gets you up in the morning, you know? Feeling good about yourself, you know? Like that Lizzo song, you know? Feeling good about yourself, right? That, there is something for every single person. An artist might feel like creativity is what makes you worthy. Worship person might feel like your size of your bonus is what makes you worthy. But every person has something. It's the original sin. It's the knowledge of good and bad. It's the coverings that Adam and Eve had to do in order to live with themselves. Without it, we can't live. If there is nothing that makes us feel like we're worthy, we will implode. We will self-destruct. We will die. Right? What the cross says is, you are unconditionally worthy. You're worthy because God loves you, not because of anything you do or are. Right? Now, if you really believe that, then you have to let go of everything that makes you worthy in your own eyes because you cannot believe I'm unconditionally worthy and then think, well, I'm worthy or worthy-er, you know, because I uh, got a little more money. How, how would that... It's like light and darkness. As soon as one comes in, the other has to go. As long as you have even a single bit of like, oh, I feel good about myself because of I'm strong, I'm handsome, or anything like that, then you are not believing you're unconditionally worthy. Does that make sense? Two cannot coexist at the same time. So when Jesus says we must carry our cross daily, that doesn't mean we are to take on exquisite torture and suffering. Okay? That means taking on the cross daily means dying to everything that makes you worthy. Dying to everything that makes you feel like you are worth loving because of these attributes you have. You have to let that all go. 
It's the only way to take in the unconditional love of the cross. And what that means, you have to sell everything you have. And not more than that. You have to sell everything you are. Does that make sense? Every day you have to work on letting go of all those things that make up your identity. In order to take on the identity rooted in the love of God. That's hard work. Because every day we eat the fruit of the knowledge of good and bad. Every day we are so instinctively good at judging who's in, who's out, who's worthy, who's not worthy, who's saved, who's not saved, who's with me, who's not with me. That's just instinctive. We have to repent and live like the good Samaritan in the greatest commandment who, who poured out this unconditional love to this unidentifiable naked man beaten up on the road who is anyone. And, and that, that good Samaritan is Jesus. You know, Jesus pours out unconditionally his love towards any human being. If we do that, we will live. We will experience life of the kingdom of God. We will experience heaven because you will be on the greatest drug ever. You will have the highest of the high because what can shake you? You are the most worthy human being ever because the infinite Lord of the universe, God, loves you infinitely so much so that he would die for you. How, how worthy can you be that God would do that for you? If you really took that in your heart, what could shake you? If you really believe that, you would be, you'd be so happy with yourself. You would feel so beloved, so worthy. And then you, you extend that out to all human beings because that's, God did that for all human beings. If you study separate people out and say, well, that person's worth my love, but that person is not. Right? Because, you know, he's a Republican. Or he's a, she's a Democrat. Or, you know, he's a Muslim or Jew. As soon as you start conditionally separating people out, you, you just let go of the unconditional grace and worth that you said you believed in. It's all gone. Right? So, so you have to unconditionally love everyone and you have to unconditionally love everything that comes your way. Because as soon as you start going, well, if I don't get a $100,000 bonus check, then I'm going to be really mad because blah, blah, blah. Well, I mean, you just let go of the unconditional grace, right? It's those things that make your life worth living, not. So then you are unconditionally happy with yourself, others, and with your life. What more do you want? I mean, that's, that's heaven. I mean, if you really live like that, you would be a shining example of a human being. You would have so much joy. You could rejoice always. You would be grateful all the time. You would just be, you are saved. You are part of the kingdom of God now and for eternity. The, re- the reason why you think you will be saved is because you are already saved. You already feel the heaven in your life already. And so you know it's just going to go on forever. You don't have, that is the assurance of salvation. Does that make sense? It all comes together. What you must believe, what you do, it all comes together. It's all based on 
The cross. Now, so if you believe this and live like this, if this is the meaning of the cross, then can someone born in Iran go to heaven? Absolutely. Sure. If someone lives out the greatest command, just unconditionally love themselves and other people around them, then they are believing and living out the essence of the message of the cross, whether they actually believe in the facts of the cross or not. Does that make sense? You know these words that we say, Jesus is incarnate God, Jesus died on the cross, Jesus rose from the dead and went to heaven. They are not some incantation, guys. They are not some magic words that just has the power in the words itself to save you. Those words point to something. Those words have meaning. It's the meaning that's important, not the words themselves. Don't you think? I mean, there are all kinds of Christians who believe all these facts about Jesus. Let's say a priest who who abuses children for decades and decades, going from parish to parish, abusing children for 70 years. Uh, That priest knows everything about the doctrines and can recite you all these facts and believe in all those facts. I can believe that such a priest believes in all those words. But does such a priest believe in the meaning behind those words? I would say absolutely not. Because how could someone continually hurt another person like that repeatedly for decades while believing that every person, including that person, is infinitely beloved and worthy and deserves my respect and deserves good treatment? It doesn't make any sense. It's contradictory beliefs. You don't. You believe one or the other. You can't. You know? Does that make sense? All those Christians who say they are Christians but still divide people up into like good people, bad people, you're going to heaven so I'm going to hang out with you, you're going to hell, you're no good. They are not Christian. They say they are Christian but they are only believing in the words, not the meaning. They are the wrongdoers who will be kept out of heaven. That's wrongdoing if you abuse people, hurt people just because. You know, those terrorists who took down the two towers, they were able to do that because they thought these Jews or Americans, they are worthless things. I am doing God a great service by giving up my life to change the world for a better place. I am going to paradise after this. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Every human being infinitely loved of God. Every human being. Does that make sense? Now, does that mean you can just go around and do bad things because you're just loved of God? Right? Now, separate. So, first suggestion I had was separate meaning from the words. I kind of got lost. Well, got too excited. So, you have to separate meaning from the words. And I have the second thing I recommend is separate functionality from worth. It's the next slide. Look, if you commit a crime, you should go to jail. That's just functionality issue. If you take drugs and get addicted, your life will go bad. <laughs> well, you know, it's not going to go well functionally. Doesn't mean you are worthless. You know, a drug dealer is still infinitely beloved of God and worthy, just like the prodigal son. 
But functionally speaking, a drug dealer needs to be locked up in jail and needs to really seriously think about what they're doing to other people and to themselves. That's an issue of functionality. Does that make sense? So when Jesus says, forgive everyone forever, when he, and you just think, well, does that mean I'm going to be a doormat? Have you heard, you know, turn the other, all that? That is all about unconditionally loving. But it doesn't affect functionality. It doesn't mean become a doormat. Functionally, it's better to work hard, study hard, and live well. It's more fun that way. Okay, kids? You know, don't skip school. You are infinitely loved. You are infinitely worthy. We love you so much. But do your homework. (laughs) Because life will not be fun if you don't. I mean, just... If you don't have homework, then you're free. But anyway, but you will get homework. Go to school that gives you homework. But anyway, so, right? Do you know what I'm saying? Functionality is not worth. We confuse the two. The whole world confuses functionality with worth. If you function well, then you are worthy. No, you have to separate the two. We shame the kids when they fail as if they are worthless. That is the toxic thing. That, that is feeding them knowledge of good and evil. It will, cause, it will cause a lot of therapist bills later on. Okay? Don't you agree, the therapists among you? Don't shame your kids. They are infinitely worthy. Never shame your kids. But teach them about functionality. If you don't do these things, your life won't go well. It's your choice. But I'm going to make you do homework. While you are under my roof, you know, because I want, once you're 18, you can do whatever you want. But while you are in, this is my functionality. And if someone hurts you repeatedly, cut them out of your life. You don't, you know, just say you're infinitely worthy and you are lovable, but I don't want to hang out with you because you keep hurting me. And I have to unconditionally love myself too. You know, that doesn't affect any worth. Does that all make sense? It all makes sense, guys. It's the greatest message ever. It is the message that brings us heaven. It truly brings life to us. This is the message that saves us, that if we believe and live by, heaven will start flowing in us and through us and change the whole world. This is why we do church, because it's so hard to live by this message. We have to remind ourselves all the time We have to surround ourselves with other people who think like this, live like this, and trying to move like this. This is why we have to get together all the time and remind each other this is who we are. Amen? Let's pray. Yeah, she gets it. Well, Jesus, thank you for this incredible message. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for what you did. Lord, The Bible tells us that you gave up your own identity, even your identity as God, when you took on the cross. So help us to take up our cross daily and follow your example and lay down all our identity, lay down all that makes up who we are and do what you did. And take up our cross daily by repenting of all those times that we go up and down depending on how circumstances go up and down. 
Help us, O God, to live by the grace and love and joy of the living God that never changes. Amen.